Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. I wouldn't say we fell in love right away. I think we were, as they call it in the biz, trauma bonding. And then after eight years of being insufferably sober, I started drinking again. Addicts tend to be rather sensitive people. Aren't you Mark Maron? I'm like, yeah. And she goes, what happened to you? Hi, you're listening to Light Hustler, a podcast all about addiction and recovery. Perhaps you are watching Light Hustler, a podcast all about addiction and recovery, and that is because for the second time, I am recording a video intro. This is a new thing you can do on iTunes. So, oh, by the way, I'm Anna David. I am your host. And if for all these years, you're like, what does she look like? I wish I could watch this. You're in luck. If you go to the iTunes iPodcast app, you can now watch this. Do not do this if you're driving. So sometimes these episodes are interviews. Sometimes they are stories. Today's is an interview I did over Facebook Live, and it is with the author, Kristen Casey. She wrote Rock Monster, My Life with Joe Walsh, and she is an amazingly talented author. And what we talk about is her decision to share her story, uh, in particular to write a book that exposes a torrid, drug-fueled relationship with a rock star without his permission to do so. And she has a message for anyone listening who is thinking about sharing their story. So if you are still wondering if you should be sharing your story, you got a story to tell and you're like, I, I want to, should I? I have a quiz for you. Go to lighthustler.com slash quiz, L-I-G-H-T-H-U-S-T-L-E-R dot com slash quiz. Take a quiz, figure out if you should be sharing your story. And I give Kristen a proper introduction once this interview starts, so I'm not going to be redundant. Oh, I am going to say happy Thanksgiving if you're listening to this over Thanksgiving weekend. If not, happy whatever it is for you today. Uh, I really hope you like this interview. I think you will. Bye. Well, hi, guys. I'm Anna David. I'm here with Kristen Casey. There she is. I never know how to, which way to point. Uh, yes. yes, that worked. That's Kristen over there. Um, I am so excited. I, myself, if you're new to this, I am a New York Times bestselling author of six books about addiction recovery. Um, I'm going to be sober 18 years next week, which means I'm quite old because you can't be sober that long without, unless you got sober as a prepubescent, which I did not. Now, Kristen has written a book uh, that I could not put down. And I was telling her this means quite a lot considering I am so sick of the addiction recovery memoir. Look, I love all your memoirs. It's just awesome. But I read so many of them that I didn't think I could read another. And this one you want to get because I could not put down. Now it is called 
rock monster, my life with Joe Walsh. And yes, that is Joe Walsh from the Eagles, but this is not one of those. I'm with the band. Uh, I uh, was, this is a literary memoir about a drug fueled affair uh, with uh, somebody who also happens to be a pillar of sobriety today. So please welcome Kristen Casey. Hi, how are you? Um, and thanks you guys for being here. Rodney, ch ch is that your full name? Um, feel free to chime in. Feel free after this is over to go to Kristen's website, which is KristenCaseyAuthor.com, and it's Kristen, K-R-I-S-T-I-N. And now we've got Kristen here. Uh, let's talk about Rock Monster. Now, um, you've been a writer for a long time. What made you decide to write this book? Well, I guess um, first and foremost, I felt like it was time. Like I had enough distance and therapy to do it justice. You know, I mean, I it was such an impactful part of my life. And um, I it's been 21 years. I've been sober for 21 years. Exactly. And thank you. And Joe and I broke up um, uh, for the second and final time in 95. So 23 years ago. So the relationship was, you know, 25. When I first started writing the book, it was 24, 25 years since um, the relationship. And, you know, it took me a long time to really come to terms with it. Um, and not so much even the relationship, but a lot of the baggage that I carried around from childhood that brought me to a place where I would have such a sort of destructive relationship. We're I mean, it was, we, we really were in love with each other, but we had a lot of issues. And, uh, you know, we both did. And both for both of us, it came from childhood. So, you know, I've been in therapy for all that time. And, um, I just felt that at some point I, I really had the clarity to to be able to tell that story. And also as a writer and a woman in recovery, um, to not tell the story of the most impactful events of my life and relationship of my life would just, it, it made no sense. I mean, I'm a memoirist and it's a, you know, it, it made for a good story. I thought it, you know, an interesting story, but it also, um, I, it seemed like the story that I had to tell first, especially before I got to, you know, I'm going to write more memoirs and, and about um, sort of what happened in early recovery and how I sort of put myself back together. But I think I had to tell the story about how I fell apart first. Right. Yeah. Now, of course, the question I wondered throughout is, what is your relationship with him like now? And did he know and did he read the memoir before it came out and all of those things? You know, uh, he... I. I assume that he's read it since it came out, but I was not able to reach him before it came out. I tried right around, the first year I started writing it was uh, 2013, and I tried to reach him then. And we had, the last time we had talked was 2011. So a couple years had gone by, and uh, we had sort of st slowly started to lose touch um, around the time that he got married again, which, you know, is normal. I mean, that's to be expected. And so um, when I made the decision to write the book, it, uh, in 2013, I reached out a few times, couldn't reach him. And I thought, well, I'll just write it and I'll, I'll see. I didn't quite know how it was going to come out. And I thought, well, I'll reach him at some point. And then, uh, you know, a couple years later, I had my rough draft and I forget when, maybe around the time I got a publisher, I tried again and I, I started reaching out to everyone. I never could get through, get hold of him. So, um, yeah, I haven't heard from him. I assume he's read it. Um, I hope he likes it. And that's everything I know. 
you know, we're on good terms. I mean, we were on good terms when we lost touch. We've always, we've been on good terms ever since um, basically I got sober. Yeah. And you got sober before he, he's very publicly out there about being sober. He's yeah. He not. got, well, he got sober. Actually, we broke up in 93 and then um, the, the day we got back together is the day he had, the Eagles had their sort of intervention with him. And so he got sober then. And so our last year together were, was me drinking still and him totally sober and going completely different directions. And so I think another two years went by before I got sober, but we had been broken up by then. Now, what I like to always ask people is, you know, what made you decide to tell your story? And specifically, we're not talking about Joe, your story about being an addict, about being out there. Uh, what was your decision and, and, and what's the most surprising thing about it? Oh, let's see. The most surprising thing. Um, I don't, you know, that's, I, I have no idea what the most surprising thing would be to other people. Um, the people that you've heard from, um, you know, is it what you expected it to be? It was obviously a decision to tell people out there that you were sober and that you'd struggled with addiction. Well, yeah. You mean, as far as the book goes, like um, the decision to be as open as I was in the book. Yeah. You made a decision at a certain point to be publicly out there as an addict. Yeah. Was that a conscious decision? Oh yeah, I mean, um, you know, I've, the way I've lived my life, I've, it's not like I've ever had some sort of um, professional uh, uh, image or, I mean, uh, I'm a, I was a stripper for so much of my life that really like coming out as an addict was, you know, um, my my life as a stripper was so much more controversial and and for some reason, you know, the thing that more people had an issue with. Anything having to do with sexuality actually seems to be more of an issue to people. Although getting sober in 97, I mean, it, it wasn't like it is now, but it certainly was better than getting sober in say, you know, the seventies or eighties. Like there was some stigma, but not as much. I lived in Vegas. I was a stripper. Um, I, I wasn't, um, it never occurred to me not to be open about it, to be quite honest. Right. And yeah, I've always been self-employed. Um, you know, and I've I've just sort of lived my life. I was a punk rocker, then I was a stripper. Like being out as an addict was was practically pedestrian. <laughs> I think. Right. Who cares? They would have been really shocked if you hadn't been. Really. I know, right? Exactly. <laughs> um. So and so, when did you start writing? You began writing for literary magazines. How did that come about? Well, when I first got okay, the, so the first short stories I ever wrote, I think I was like eighteen, nineteen, and um. Uh, one of them actually was one of the first short stories I got published much later in life. Um, but uh, uh, the whole time that I was with Joe and drinking and then, of course, using, I didn't write anything of substance other than just journaling, like nothing that was worth publishing. And then when I got sober, I, you know, I immediately knew that at some point I need to start writing because that's just always been um, my biggest dream and always been what I thought was one of my few raw talents. Um, and there was a lot of fear around that. But the first year and a half of, of my sobriety, I lived in Vegas and I just worked and made money and paid off my debt and went to AA. And that's all I did. I just focused, you know, focused on what I, what I needed to do. And then when I was well enough um, to uh, get out of stripping and maybe, you know, enter into like a vanilla job, a, a mainstream job, I came back to Austin. And Austin is such a creative community. It's just really supportive. Like, I, um, I mean, LA... 
LA might have been as well. Um, but Vegas, in Vegas, if you tell people, you know, you're you're going to be a writer and you spend all your time writing and you, it, I think they look at you like you're crazy. That's kind of a, that's a town where people work, you know, it's everybody, you know, there's a lot of blue collar workers there, construction workers and waitress. You know, you come to Austin, you tell people that you're working as little as possible so you can be a writer and they support that. Like they celebrate that. So just the energy here was really supportive. And um, immediately I started, not immediately, I am. Um, I started writing a lot and working out, you know, I started running marathons and going to AA and then I sort of became a workaholic. Um, I got into real estate and um, I was thinking with real estate that I would find time to write. You know, I'd be my own boss um, and I could pick my own hours, not realizing that as a realtor, you're, you know, you're going to pick your own 80 hours a week is what you're going to do. And so um, I finally started really applying myself to writing. Um, like I had maybe four years sober and, um, and then it was even sporadic because I, I had a big fear of failure. But I was my 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 social group um, continued to expand with you know photographers and musicians and people who were putting everything on the line for their art. And so that was really inspiring to me. And um, around 2004, I think it was. Yeah, I um, I realized you know I had put my life back together, but I wasn't happy. I wasn't really um, pursuing my dreams. You know, I. So I backed off the real estate just a little bit and started throwing myself into writing. And within like a year, I think I got my first poem published and then my first short story. And then the next year I got another one. And and so things started taking off from there. But for me, I really did, I, I was such a low bottom. I had to establish a foundation for my life first. I needed to work as hard as I did and learn how to be accountable and dependable and organized and disciplined and, and um, uh, you know, all those things that most people learn in their 20s when they come out of college and they start working, I still didn't have those skills in my 30s. So, um, and then at that point, you know, I had to, um, I felt like I'd sort of caught up a little bit, but I was in my 30s. I was well into my 30s when before I um, started getting published. Um, yeah, and I was 50 when my book came out. Yeah, and that is a great message because so many people come to me and they say, I'm too... I'm too old. I don't have the right degree. I don't know the right people and all of these things. And it's like, I have all these things I can trot out. Like Laura Ingalls Wilder, I think was 70 when she published Little House on the Prairie. I mean, there's all sorts of evidence. And especially if you're suffering from alcoholic thinking, there's all this false evidence appearing real mm -hmm. and our fear of failure and perfectionism and all of those things. Mm -hmm. Um, and so let's talk about you selling your book. I was randomly texting with your publisher, Tyson Cornell, this morning. Um, you sold your book to Rare Bird Lit, which is a yeah. prestigious Los Angeles-based uh, book publishing imprint. How did that happen? I love them. I'm, I feel so lucky to have landed with them. Um, my agent uh, is in New York City. His name is Peter McGuigan with Foundry Lit and Media. And uh, what's so funny is he was on my top 10 list. And I sent out my top 10 uh, queries to my, you know, agents who rep the kind of work that I like. And, um, and then I said, and then every week I would send out 20 or 30 more. And I got up to 150 queries, which is a lot, you know, even in this day and age, that's a lot. And then, uh, uh oh, uh oh, you went away. You're, you're back. So um, I told him, I said, you were one of the first people I emailed, but he just never got it. Yeah. So um, and he was fantastic. You know, he just he really liked and he, um, you know, he has some really big clients. Like I think Trevor Noah is one of his clients. And, you know, my little edgy, you know, rock and roll addiction memoir, um, 
you know, he said, he's not going to make a million bucks off of that. And he, and he said, um, your book is the kind of thing that I love. And, um, you know, my big clients allow me to keep the lights on in my agency so I can rep books like yours once in a while. And so, and then he found, um, he shopped it around and he found Tyson. And uh, what was so great about Tyson is that, and everyone at Rare Bird is that, uh, you know, I had a big fear that here's my baby. I'm going to turn it over. They're going to hopefully edit it, make it better, you know, refine it or tell me what needs to be changed. But they're probably going to make me take out a lot. And, um, you know, I had sort of resigned myself to that fact. I think you probably know as a writer that to some degree you have to release that control and and it has to, you know, be, it can't be too long. And they let me write the book I wanted to write. You know, they 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 helped me polish it up so it was as good as it could be. But they and then they put forty odd pictures in there, and um, you know, they didn't exert. They and that's I think a thing with them. They really like their lighter writers to express themselves as who they are, and they have a lot of edgy writers. You know, people in the sex industry, addicts, um, uh, people getting um, uh, transgender. It's you know, they have a lot of really cool authors, and they let us write the books we need to write. Okay, a few things. Will you hold your mic a little bit more in front of your face? It's like the mic on there. You're saying so many golden nuggets and we're losing a few words. Do you see okay. what? I oh, like like here? Oh, God, that sounds good. Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. Um, I, there are so many things you said that are so incredibly useful. First of all, 150 queries. Second of all, that your dream agent didn't even see the first query. People get so discouraged. And I love that you just, I mean, you were already publishing. So you understood that this is not, this is not somebody, and I think that people will assume, oh, they read it, they hated it. No, they didn't even see it. Yeah. And the numbers game. I remember my very first agent, they used to have uh, the Hollywood creative directory because uh, I was trying to be a screenwriter. My, my uh, writing partner and I wrote a query letter to every single agent in that book and two wrote back out of hundreds and said, we're interested. And one wanted to sign us. And I have students who get discouraged after one um, rejection. And, and this is, I would say, getting it sold is at least as much work as the writing. Yeah. And it took as long, I think. I mean, really, because I wrote the rough draft in 18 months and then I set it aside, let it percolate. And then I would go back to it every couple of months and polish the whole thing. Like the first polish took six months and then the next polish took four months and then the next polish took three months. And then the next. So from beginning to end, it was a four year process getting that book. Um, and, and honestly, until that last polish and I and I was down to the wire. Like it, it was time to turn it in. No more changes. And um, and I quit everything. I, I I told all my clients I'm not working for the next week. And all I did was live and breathe out those final edits until I finally felt like it was ready. And um and then uh, uh but still from the time I found Peter to the time that we till it came out was like two years I think. And I don't want to scare anybody because it can happen faster than that. But yes, yeah, it can take that long. Yeah. And um, good, Sarah is saying rejection makes me fight harder. It is so yeah. the difference, the, the difference between the writers I know that have made it and the writers that haven't is the writers who have made it just kept going. And it's really as simple as that. I honestly don't even think it's that much about talent. I've known some super talented people that have never sold books. Oh yeah, and I've, I've heard a lot of agents say that too. Like in this market, um, 
their biggest complaint is that there are some great writers out there who are never going to get published just because um, the way the industry is now, uh, they're they're narrowing what they're able to to do. And yeah. And then there are also some untalented writers who are getting published because they're just hitting the right topic at the right time or whatever. And not just getting published, having huge hit books. Yeah. We don't get into our fourth steps right now, but yeah. my God, does that happen? Yeah. So, and I think that's another thing that you mentioned that I think is really important is I too, coming from the magazine, I had probably eight years as a journalist by the time I sold my book. And so my publisher comes to me and they're like, so we're going to need some work on this. And so I was like, okay, cool. Page one rewrite. Like I, and they were like, no, we need you to add, you need, we need you to like buff up the love interest three or four pages. And I was just shocked because I was so used to having my work torn apart and re put back together. And they really, uh, HarperCollins was my publisher for four books and they really let me do what I wanted, which was um, a real shock, I think. Yeah. Well, you, I mean, you must've had the skills too, as a journalist, you have to, um, get it right, get it clear, be fast. I'm not a fast writer. I mean, I'm shocked by people like Amy who wrote that book in six months. I mean, I'll never stop being in awe of that. I know. Well, you know, my big, one of my big uh, claims fame is that I discovered Amy Dresner. Um, no, I didn't yeah, know that. It was an editor at The Fix and I, we did, I assigned a story on her and then I was like, and I've known her, her whole sobriety. And I said, Amy, you're so funny. You should write. And she wrote for me for years and she still writes for The Fix. Yeah. Um, but so, so moving on, just in case anybody is showing up late, Kristen's memoir is called Rock Monster. What is the subtitle? I don't have it. Oh, My Life with Joe Walsh. And in case you guys don't know that, Joe Walsh was with the Eagles and is a now sober musician. And their, their story's crazy. And, you know, Kristen mentioned a low bottom. She's not actually one of those people who's exaggerating about her low bottom. Um, you, you were addicted to meth before you met Joe, which was when you were, what, 19? 17, 18. 17, 18 cured that addiction and then and then uh there was a lot of and monster refers not to joe walsh being a monster it refers to what you guys called cocaine yeah that was it was like our pet name for each other we could use it as a noun or a verb or an adjective like you know we would call each other monsters if we had um like party monster you know and like like if we'd been up for three days we might look at each other and look at the trashed house and just kind of go god we're such monsters or you're such a monster or like if um if one of joe's friends wanted to come over he'd be like no we can't we're monstering right now you know a so, lot of monstering like yeah. i loved it i mean i want to say you used uh monster as a gerund yeah, I'm gonna say two hundred times yeah. <laughs> every single time, and so so when it was a really low bottom, and after the breakup, the meth addiction just got worse and worse and worse. And then, what was your bottom, and what was your resurgence? Uh, okay, so yeah, you know what happened was when um, when I when Joe and I broke up the first time, I had been using crack, and it had, for the last uh, year of that initial five year relationship, and it had been really quickly escalating. In fact, you know, Joe had been a coke addict for decades, like you know, two decades when I met him probably, and um, I had not really done much coke, and so as soon as I started doing it, it started getting out of control. But when I moved in with him, it went completely out of control, and then I blew out my septum, and that gave me an excuse to smoke it instead. So the last year we were together, um, you know, and he rightfully was completely freaked out and it, and it contributed to our breakup. Once we broke up and I moved to Vegas um, and I had that altercation with that guy I was seeing there and got beat up, I, I threw him in jail and I thought, what am I doing? I'm in love with Joe. I got to stop this crack. And that's what I did. And yet 
I didn't quit the drinking, which was my first love anyway. So, you know, my drinking then sort of escalated. Joe and I got back together, but since he had gotten sober and wasn't paying for my Coke anymore, um, I, I was less interested in it, but I could not, my drinking was, you know, by then it was just all day, every day. And so um, when Joe and I finally broke up that second time after a year of that, I had lost myself so much in that relationship. I did not see myself as a, a separate entity anymore. Who was I if I wasn't Joe's girlfriend? I had lost everything about that, you know, um, my own individual traits and my dreams. And I just thought in my delusion, you know, in this very low place, I, the world is better off without me. I'm going to drink myself to death. I mean, I was half there already. So I spent two years trying to do that. And then um, the day came when I thought, you know, I was very, very sick. I, I had alcohol poisoning. And I thought, today might be the day I die. And um, I was in this limbo state all day. Um, and I had nothing to do but think and ponder and, and, and try to listen to what my higher power wanted for me. And I just all of a sudden knew that it was to, to try to live and try to get sober. And that's what I did. And it worked that time. Yes, I never the, the first time I really tried to get sober, completely clean and sober is the only time I'm, I never went out. I never. But when you have a super low bottom, you know, a lot of people will say to me, you know, you, what you did, that big leap you made, that's really impressive. And I'm like, well, I don't know how impressive it is that I had to have one foot in the grave. <laughs> you know, there's there's two ways to look at it. There's a lot of people who who um, slip, but they also get sober at an earlier stage than I did. You know, I had I, I knew that if I drank again, I was going to die. So. I, I think it's so important that you said that because I actually believe that it is harder for people who sort of have their lives together. I mean, whatever, harder. How can I say? I will say that for me, um, I, my bottom for me was as low as could go. I was completely isolated. I was doing cocaine alone um, and I was suicidal. So I don't get lower than that. And I am extremely grateful because never in my sobriety do I go, Ooh, well, that would be a nice release. There would be no release. I would be yeah. suicidal. And I think that people who are still having fun out there, but still their lives are unmanageable, it is so much harder. Yeah. Yeah. It's totally understandable if they slip, if they, you know, if that becomes part of their recovery. Absolutely. Um, people are saying we have some book fans here. Patrick is Riley is saying as hard as it is sometimes to read the stories, it's written in a way that's accessible, not self-indulgent, but honest. And I think that's really important because uh, if anybody's the monster in that book, you paint yourself. Yeah, as you really do. Yeah, I am. Um, that was very important to me. And that's one of the reasons I waited as long as I did was because, um, you know, there was some lingering. It's sometimes I think think back and I would, you know, all the blame would be on me. You know, it was all my fault. I'm, you know, full, I'm a, what a horrible person. And then other times I'd, I'd look back and think, you know, I'd, I'd place blame on Joe that wasn't warranted. And, you know, I had to process, get, get through all of that. And then when I, once you get clarity, you know, and, and I got that through working my program, my 12 step program, it, it allowed me to see my part in things and also um, where everyone else was coming from. And the word blame suddenly ceases to really be a part of it. You know, everybody, honestly, everyone from my parents to my boyfriend, to my friends, to, to my drug dealers, were, were doing the best they could at the, at the time, you know? Um, and I had choices to make that I wasn't making. And it really, for me, it was all about becoming accountable for my life and taking charge of my life and using the free will that I had. And um, uh, I forget where I was going with that, but. but um, it's I think it's really also important because as a writer, 
you have a lot of power in a way, you know, and the poisonous pen can be really poisonous. And I know this firsthand. Yeah. And I've, I've read those memoirs and it's, I never wanted to write one of those. I never wanted to write one that I look back later and thought, you know, um, I, I, I was, I was being childish or blinded. You know, I, I, I really wanted to, um, I see people in sobriety that, that own their crap and they, and they, um, you know, the old timers or, you know, some people who get it right away, whatever. And, um, and they were my role models, you know, I mean, if I wanted to be childish and bitter, um, or if I needed to be, I did those in the, in my meeting rooms, you know, I, you know, that's what my early sobriety was. I let out a lot of anger and bitterness and, and childishness and, and, um, rage and resentment. And, um, and I got a lot of clarity there too. So speaking of getting clarity, we had talked right before we went on about your current job. And I promised not to, you know, sideswipe you with some like bizarre question about it. But will you describe your current job? Yeah. So I'm an intimacy coach and a surrogate partner, um, an IPSA trained and supervised surrogate partner. And I'm going to be getting certified there soon. And so uh, my intimacy coaching and my surrogate partner work, they're similar. I mean, there's some overlap. Um, but basically, uh, what both of them are uh, a way to help clients who are dealing with in uh, fear of intimacy or any issues around intimacy frequently, but not always um, uh, manifesting as um, sexual dysfunction or um, uh, uh, dissociation. Dissociation. Um, you know, most people have intimacy issues, and I what I've discovered is, um, you know, to some degree, most people are working them through. But a lot of people could use a little help. I was one of them, and I didn't have an intimacy coach when I first got sober. But I had, I was, I had a great big fear of intimacy, and so my whole thirties was a process of. Um, uh, being desperately lonely, I like really being crippled by loneliness and yet being completely unable to allow anyone in. And so it was a slow process of just sort of um, dating as much as I could and dating men who were unavailable because that felt safer and then slowly um, dating men who were a little bit more available. But uh, uh, with intimacy coaching, I personally work with men and other intimacy coaches work with couples or women. And there's a lot of um, exercises around communication um, mindfulness, embodiment, because almost to a man, my clients all have some level of anxiety around intimacy. And that can include, um, when you say intimacy, that can be physical, emotional, a combination thereof. Um, I have clients who um, uh, can't be in the present moment or in their bodies when they're touching and being touched. They're always either in um, anxiety about uh, uh, performance, anxiety about failures in the past and, and, all of that. So, you know, it's, it's all about helping a person stay in the moment and connected and um, reducing anxiety, opening channels of communication, experiencing uh, pleasure in the moment versus performance, pleasure versus performance and that type of thing. And so do a lot of people go, oh, so you just have sex. Like, do the people just don't understand what it is? Um, yeah, I think so. More and more people seem to be, um, most people don't have any idea what it is. When I, when they ask me about the surrogate partnership, um, there's a movie that is uh, a pretty good portrayal of it that came out a while back with Helen Hunt called The Sessions. And that's actually based on the life of 
uh, of a surrogate partner named Carol Cohen Green. And then Lisa Ling did a show on it. It was a season opener, I think, last year. She did a show, an hour-long show on sexual healing. And so she had um, one of the IPSA certified surrogate partners, like a 20-minute segment. Um, I don't know if you can find that online. Um, so it's slowly started, sort of kind of coming out more into the public um, uh, uh, view, yeah. but, um, you know, and, and as far as the surrogate partnership, you know, that did stem from, from the work of masters and Johnson and it does, um, frequently, not always, but if it's, if it's to the benefit of the client, um, if it, it can involve um, a certain amount of sex, it's 10 or 15% of the entire process usually. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in the same way that, um, Oh, one of our surrogate partners has a great analogy. In the same way that um, a chef, a, a, a celebrity chef might um, be really great with pastries, you wouldn't call him a pastry chef because that's 10% of what he does. You know, it's just a part, intimacy is a very big umbrella and sexual intimacy is a part of that. And for some of our clients, you know, they're unable to go there because there's so much stuff between where they're at and that and having that kind of relationship. And again, communication, mindfulness, being in your body, reducing anxiety. If, you know, uh, for, for most of us, you know, we work through that stuff maybe in high school or college, you know, bit by bit, we stumble through it. And for others, you know, there's a lot of reasons they didn't. Maybe they have sexual trauma in their past. Maybe they come from a very religious upbringing. Mm. Um, you know, uh, there's a number of reasons that they get to a place where they're unable to do that. And you can't just say, well, go out and date because they freeze up when they date. And all that does is make it worse. So they, they find someone like me who's a safe partner they can trust, who can walk them through a very specific, structured series of exercises um, that can, you know, uh, help create new neural pathways and give them a positive experience and help build their confidence. Um, you know, communication and mindfulness are, are huge parts of it, but nobody asks about that. Oh, do you do communication exercises? No, it's like, do you have sex? <laughs> Boring. Yeah, yeah. Um, so anybody, uh, are, is that going to be your next book, by the way? Are you allowed to write about it? Um, you know, I, the thing about the surrogate partnership is that to me, it's, it's, it's like that. I, I just treasure it. I treasure that work. If I won the lottery tomorrow, I would continue to do that work. I would. Um, I am going to write about intimacy. My next book is going to be about intimacy. It's going to be about that journey that I made in my thirties from someone who had a terror, you know, was terrified of intimacy to someone who was able to have a really fulfilling, I fell in love again at 39, 10 years after I got sober. And, um, and it was, it was magnificent. It was a, it didn't last as long as the one with Joe, but it healed a lot of the, the sort of the, some of the residual brokenness that I experienced from that relationship with Joe. Um, I, I will talk about things that directly relate to my work as an intimacy coach and surrogate partner, but my surrogate partner work, I, th I like to leave that up to the IPSA certified surrogate partners who've been doing it for 10 and 20 and 30 years because they're so eloquent and they speak on it better than I do, I think. Well, you guys, we have to wrap up, but please, please, please go get Kristen's memoir. It's called Rock Monster, My Life with Joe Walsh. Nancy chimed in that she just got it. I know, Nancy, she's going to love it. Oh, yay. And one, I wanted to end on what would you tell people who are struggling with whether or not they want to share their stories of recovery? They know they want to, but they're scared to. Oh, I, you know, I would tell them that they're doing the world a favor, you know, um, I know that I have been inspired by every story that I've read. And it makes, it's important that everyone else out there knows the, 
that they're not alone. And when I got sober, there was not, there was no internet, or at least it was in its very first stages. And when I, you know, uh, my 12 step program was a huge part of my recovery, but um, less so as the years went on, I just take the steps with me where I go. I don't go to meetings anymore. So when, when the book came out and I started getting much more involved in the recovery scene again, I was stunned. I mean, I was just so delighted to see how massive it's gotten and how, how the support and the presence. Um, and I never tire of hearing people's stories. It reminds me why I got sober. It, it reminds me to be part of this thing. And so everybody's story counts. Every person counts. Everybody's recovery counts. And, um, you know, I just feel like um, uh, when you share, you're helping others. And if, and if that makes it, um, to, to me, when I wrote the book, that was one of my main goals was, um, I wanted to add to the collective consciousness um, so that we can better understand it because the more voices we have, the more we'll understand it and the faster we're going to find better treatments and, um, you know, all of that. So so do it for the rest of us, if not for yourself, I guess. And I just want to say hi, Patrick, and thank you for everything. He's just been so supportive on my Facebook group. I love his comments. They're so good. Thank you all of you for showing up, Chris, and thank you so much for being here. Uh, go get her memoir, and I'm gonna keep doing these Facebook Live interviews, so if you like my page, uh, facebook.com slash David, you will find out about more of them, and that is it for today. Thank you so much. Thanks, Anna, great to be here. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye.